Hello and welcome to Quadcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Claire Bottini. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Muller. And we are here with Kate Anushka. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, guys. Kate, we're excited to have you on the show today. Wondering, just to kick us off, if you'd mind telling us a little bit about your research, your background, and what brought you here to Western. Yeah, so um, I guess for everyone listening, I am doing my PhD in the Department of Neuroscience. And my first exposure to the field of neuroscience actually came in high school. Um, I'm from Waterloo, Ontario, and I got to do a cooperative education placement in a lab at Wilfrid Laurier University. That was oh, my alma mater, good school. No way, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in um, a behavioral neuroscience lab. So uh, doing work looking at behavior related to um, actually different pharmacological agents in uh, models of anxiety in rats. And I mean, as a 17 year old student seeing even just that in and of itself, like really sparked my interest. And from grade 12 onwards, I did my undergrad um, at McGill University and I kind of always had that experience in mind. Um, I hadn't declared a major when I started at McGill, uh, but they do have a neuroscience program there. And so I think that prior experience working in the lab, um, combined with just my general interest in science led me to pursue a degree in neuroscience. Um, and M McGill is a big university um, for neuroscience in general at both the undergrad and graduate level. And because of that, they have a lot of opportunities for research placements. And I got the opportunity to work at uh, the Montreal Neurological Institute or the MNI. Um, under Dr. Leslie Fellows, who's a prior Rhodes Scholar. She's now um, the Vice Dean of Medicine at the MNI. And she let me do a very independent um, neuroimaging project there and really like honed in on my interest in neuroscience and imaging and kind of through a weird web of people. Um, I met my current supervisor, Dr. Taylor Schmitz, who was actually at McGill at the time that I was uh, doing my research placement there with Leslie. And then I followed him here to Western. And three years later, I still love it. And I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. So um, yeah, I guess my research now, um, uh, so I started in rats and then I went to human imaging I guess I didn't say that with uh, Leslie. And now I do imaging of mice. So I've <laughs> worked from like small brain to, you know, our size of brain, and then all the way back down to about as small as it gets um, on the mammalian side of the central nervous system. And yeah, my work combines different types of imaging to look at biomarkers in the brain for different types of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. You mentioned different type of imaging. Can you develop a bit on mm -hmm. that? Yeah, so um, the first type of imaging, and I think a lot of people listening will recognize this is called uh, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. Okay. And so with MRI, yeah, yeah. 
If, have any of you ever gotten an MRI scan? Okay. For anything? <laughs> no, 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 actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just had my first one not too long ago for functional MRI, which looks at brain activity, but I've had a couple for um, the type of brain imaging I do in mice, um, which is structural magnetic resonance imaging or SMRI. And so SMRI can measure uh, changes in volume, which means that different regions of the brain can either expand or contract. And we measure this using these types of scans. You can also look at things like tractography, which is, um, in neurons, which are the resident kind of cells of the brain, there's the cell body, and then there's um, a portion of the neuron called the axon. And so the axon is covered by um, this fat called myelin, and it causes water particles around it to move differently. And uh, because of the magnetic resonance and these scanners, you can actually look at how these water molecules move along the axons and then measure changes in this white matter or these tracks that I was just talking about. And then yeah, um, the functional side. But in my mice, I just look at these volume changes I was talking about. And then the other type of imaging, which is kind of the more unique, um, especially on a mouse neuroimaging perspective, it's not very often done. It's called positron emission tomography or PET imaging. Okay. And um, have either of you ever gone to a PET scan? No. Nope. No. No. Yeah. So PET is really cool. Um, I actually didn't know much about it before I started here. Um, and now I'm one of the only people doing mouse PET imaging. And what PET does is it uh, relies on two things. An isotope, which um, for all the people with large chem backgrounds, which I don't have, <laughs> is basically um, a derivative of the natural chemical elements. So let's say um, O has six, uh, has an atomic number of 16. Um, the isotope for um, oxygen is 15, or uh, fluorine is 19, and the isotope for fluorine is 18. And uh, it relies on those isotopes and then something called the ligand, which then on the biology, biological side means that um, this protein often or uh, this chemical structure binds to something else. So it's a ligand for something else. And uh, radiochemists, what they'll do is they'll synthesize the isotope, they'll synthesize the ligand, and then they combine the two together and you get what's called a radial ligand. And what you can do with these radial ligands is you can intravenously um, inject them into, in, in um, the often case humans. And this will tell you through the detection with the PET scanner and the uh, basically emission of positrons, hence positron emission tomography from the isotope where uh, this radial ligand is binding to in the body, or in my case, the brain. And so sometimes you'll get, um, you'll see these images and they're the classic ones that are like uh, a red to yellow, um, to green to blue. And so areas that are really red and hot mean that there's a lot of that radial ligand binding to that area. Areas that are cooler, um, there's not as much. 
And so people often hear of this um, in the field of cancer, they'll use uh, PET scans to detect uh, where fast metabolizing cells are um, using something called uh, 18F-FDG, which is a fluorodeoxyglucose uh, um, radio tracer. And so uh, the idea is tumors, they metabolize a lot of oxygen very fast. And so FDG will bind to that and areas that have really high FDG single um, typically mean that that, um, that area might have cancerous cells. To make sure I understand correctly, so you inject your uh, individual uh, um, subject with your radio ligands that will spread within mm -hmm. the organism, and then the mm -hmm. radio the machine will be able to localize or be able, yeah, to localize where it is, and the one that have more activity over area that has more activity will then you assume that it will be because of cancer or other characteristic. Bingo. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Um, I give the example of the cancer model just because it is what is most widely used, but, um, and I can get into a bit the radio ligand I use. It's actually, it just became a clinical tracer. So it's very understudy. That's, that's why I'm doing the research I'm doing, but yes, exactly. So where the, um, where the radio ligand bind based off of uh, the signal intensity you get from the actual PET scanner can tell you where really high binding of that radio ligand is versus other areas. Okay. And you can do this across the whole body. Um, but in my case, yes, I look at just the brain. So yeah, um, I, I do structural MRI um, and I do positron emission tomography or PET in um, my mice. So those are the, those are the two types. So you mentioned you're not using, the, you're not looking for cancer, you're looking more for, what is the ligand are you, that you are using? Yeah, so the radio ligand I'm using, and I guess I'll backtrack a bit, but um, it's called 18F-FEOBB, and it is derived from a pharmacological drug called Vesamicol, and I believe Vesamicol was made in the 1980s. It might've been earlier than that, but I think there were a couple different labs working on it at the time. But I know the lab for sure that the radio ligand was derived from um, is down in uh, California. And so Vesamicol was used as a acetylcholinesterase inhibitor uh, to treat patients with Alzheimer's disease. And the idea was that um, in people with Alzheimer's disease, there's known degeneration of a type of cell called cholinergic neurons, uh, which are again, these brain cells, uh, a specific type of brain cells that are important for things like attention and memory. And so a lot of times people think of people with Alzheimer's disease as having you know, very significant memory deficits. So they were kind of hoping like, okay, if we use this drug uh, to potentially rescue these uh, cells, uh, people with Alzheimer's disease might not have as, poor of memory deficits, or we might be able to actually rescue them from the memory deficits they have. So you mentioned that you've done imaging um, on mice and then all the way kind of up to humans. Obviously, a size aside, what would some of the differences be in that imaging? Yeah, so, and I think a lot of, because I do look at actually 18FFOBB in both humans and mice, and one of the hardest things to reconcile between both human and mouse imaging is that um, 
the scanners that we use for humans are not the same type that we use for mice. So in mouse imaging, you require a much stronger magnet to get about the same or better resolution that we can do in humans. But on the flip side, uh, in humans, we are limited by the field strength we can use just like for ethical reasons um, and for safety reasons. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. You need a higher magnet to get okay resolution of a really small brain, um, but you can only use so high of a magnet in the human brain, um, which kind of puts a bottleneck on imaging both, but particularly for things like PET, um, and because these scans are actually done for a, quite a long period of time, um, one of the hardest things is recognizing that the brain isn't the same, obviously, uh, between mice and humans, but what are the similarities? So how can we pull out in a mouse the same uh, binding profile that we see, for instance, with my radiologian that we do in the humans? Or are they the same? If they're not, why? Um, which are some, some of the kind of fundamental questions I answer, especially with working with these really new tracers where you know there aren't decades of research being done behind um, looking at the patterns of its binding in the brain, um, especially, especially when we're doing it in most models of Alzheimer's disease and in patients with Alzheimer's. So your tracer will mark, if I understood correctly, mm -hmm. uh, cholinergic neurons, right? Yeah, yeah. So what exactly are you looking at? Yeah, so um, I kind of, just before I went off on that little tangent there. Um, cool. So if there's this idea that cholinergic neurons might uh, be more susceptible to cell death and are known to be degenerated in people with Alzheimer's disease, when does this first occur? Because if it's something that occurs before actually, you know, clinical symptoms of the disease appear, could we look at this um, in maybe middle-aged people that are showing no signs of cognitive deficits or brain atrophy, but actually see that their cholinergic neurons have started to degenerate. So in the mice that I use, we are able to uh, genetically manipulate how this protein is expressed. So for instance, in one model that I use, we remove cholinergic neurons from just one specific region of the brain and um, it's called the basal forebrain, which is the first region in the human brain to show signs of cholinergic atrophy in people that then go on to um, be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So then what we can do by genetically manipulating the expression of this protein that my radial ligand binds to is we can see number one, does the binding in this mouse model that has the same or similar type of cholinergic degeneration as people with Alzheimer's disease, does it look the same as it would in humans? And what are the consequences of the loss of these cholinergic neurons from this area? Um, does it cause subsequent changes in, let's say, volume that I look at with structural MRI? Uh, and then on the flip side, what we can do, and this is more on the method side of my work, is what can this tracer fully measure? Uh, because it's a new tracer and we don't actually know whether it's able to uh, measure these like things like you know raised intensities or super, super low intensities, 
um, how far can we push what it can actually measure? So then we know what's the sensitivity we're getting if we're trying to um, investigate this early cholinergic loss um, that potentially might happen in people. You mentioned a couple of terms, and I know you've talked to us quite a bit about a PET scan, but could you just sort of give us a Coles Notes summary of the difference between a PET scan and MRI for those of us who have had neither? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. So structural MRI, you can think of as the picture of your brain. You know, it's the hallmark uh, anatomical picture of a brain. Um, the ones that you see in Grey's Anatomy, um, <laughs> when, you know, the victory is uh, showing on a, on a TV. And that is a scan that you can look at to look at brain damage. Um, or what I keep calling degeneration, which is when cell bodies start to um, die or become damaged in the brain, um, which is often the case in individuals with neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So that's MRI. MRI is a picture of the brain and you can use those pictures to look at degeneration or brain damage uh, by measuring things like volume. Because uh, if you can imagine specific areas in the brain have generally specific volumes that are um, somewhat, somewhat consistent across um, age groups, I'd say, and um, can change actually in specific ways if uh, certain diseases are introduced in the brain. So that's kind of the, the one type of imaging I do. And then on the flip side, uh, there's positron emission tomography or PET, and PET is more of a molecular image of the brain. So unlike just a picture, which can tell you brain structure and volume, PET, by using different, um, basically, uh, biological compounds mixed with an isotope, you can look at different types of cells in the brain or in the body. Um, so I could use a radioligand that's specific for dopamine neurons or a specific radioligand for, in my case, cholinergic neurons or a specific radioligand for uh, blood oxygen. And by using this radioligand um, and introducing it into the body and thus into the brain, you can look at how the distribution um, of these cells changes as or doesn't change or does change as a function of disease. Um, and in my case, uh, in, in Alzheimer's disease models. Am I right to say that this technique, at least the PET scan, even mm -hmm. the other um, RMA, I can't pronounce that right. Uh, mm -hmm. RMA, I will give up on pronouncing that right. Uh, <laughs> the other imaging are both for in vivo animals so you can use the same animal again and again and, and see the change with age or with aging. Yeah, so that's, it, it is truly the um, kind of the capstone of my work is the fact that we don't, we haven't had a way to look at cholinergic neurons specifically in the brain until uh, 18FFEOBV, the tracer that I use was developed. Um, until then, 
the only way we could know if, um, even in most models, if there had been any changes in cholinergic neurons was through postmortem ex vivo analyses or through, you know, in vitro cell culture. But yeah, you're exactly right. What PET and S, like structural magnetic resonance imaging, what they afford is the opportunity to actually track uh, things like changes in volume or changes in cholinergic neuron molecular profiling as a function of age or just even as a function of time. If there's no effect of age, um, then we can look at other things um, that might be causing differences in uh, the signaling or in the volume, like in my case, Alzheimer's disease pathology, which is really cool. And what have you found around Alzheimer's disease pathology? Is there kind of a couple of takeaways that you might want to share with us? Yeah, for sure. So um, when we look at, uh, there's two, I guess I should start with main types of pathology that are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So on one side, you have um, amyloid beta plaques, which comes from the basically um, improper cutting of its precursor protein, which is the amyloid precursor protein, or AQP. And this results in these uh, kind of detrimental uh, or this aggregation of detrimental plaques in the brain. However, like all aging brains will have some burden of amyloid beta in their brain, but for some reason in Alzheimer's disease patients, this becomes totally out of control. Um, and then alongside amyloid beta, there's something called tau. And so tau is kind of thought to come maybe a decade after, a decade to 15 years after amyloid beta, burden begins um, and it's more related to these fibrillary tangles becoming uh, wrapped around themselves, which then wrap around cells, which then cause cell death. So amyloid beta and tau are the two hallmark pathologies. And then somewhere in between there is when we think these cholinergic neurons start dying. Um, and one of the most models I've used has looked at um, what's the relationship between when we remove um, cholinergic neurons from a specific part of the brain and when we introduce amyloid beta? What happens volumetrically, so using structural MRI, and what happens molecularly using my PET scans um, that bind to cholinergic neurons? And what we see in mice that have both amyloid beta expressed and cholinergic neurons um, removed is degeneration of areas that are known um, in humans, uh, which we measure through volume, to be uh, very, very susceptible to uh, brain cell atrophy. So uh, areas like the hippocampus in the brain, which is very involved in memory, um, we see in these mice, they are, exhibit very uh, heightened volumetric decreases. Um, compared to mice that don't have amyloid beta or cholinergic neurons removed. And then on the flip side, what we see is uh, a very pronounced loss of FELVB signals. So indicating that a lot of cholinergic neurons have died uh, in these mice and compared to um, mice that, again, don't have amyloid beta or uh, cholinergic neurons removed. So what this, and I guess I to backtrack a bit, we, so we're moving removing cholinergic neurons from a specific region of the brain, but 
when we also introduce amyloid beta, what we see is cholinergic neurons are dying in very other different places, which we can see with, um, with our PET scans. So this means that there's some interaction between the loss of these cholinergic neurons and the expression of amyloid beta that's causing almost brain-wide um, dysfunction. And we see that both on the structural MRI side and on the positron emission tomography side. Uh, and at, at this point in time, I've only done that at one time point, but I mean, my, my next you know six months are going to be uh, spent looking at how does this change six months later? Um, and just kind of what um, Claire was mentioning, looking at that longitudinal aspect in the same animals. So, you know, they looked this way at time point one, and then six months later, what else has happened? How has uh, potentially the increased load of amyloid beta or, uh, you know, the further degeneration of cholinergic neurons affected the brain? And what can we detect using um, my MRI and PET measures? Nice, a lot of project going on then. Yes, yeah, yeah. All amidst, uh, you know, the fun stuff of preparing for the comprehensive exam. So it's uh, it's it's the first longitudinal project I've ever taken on. Um, and it's it's really cool uh, to be able to look at, yeah, not just how things change instantaneously, but um, yeah, how things are gonna change across time. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And um, so I guess it's start with time to wrap up, but so if other people want to ask questions or want to follow you and learn more about your research, what should they do? Can they contact you or can they? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So if you're interested in um, my research or want to learn more about small animal imaging, in particular multimodal neuroimaging in mice, uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at K-8-O-N-U-S-K-A. Uh, and you could also check out my lab's website, which is the Integrative Neuroscience of Cognition and Aging Lab, uh, the INCA lab. And in the new year, I'll actually be presenting in Barcelona at the Alzheimer's Disease and Parkinson's Disease Conference, which I believe because of you know, the circumstances they're going to offer as a virtual um, format that you can register and watch. So uh, that's called ADPD. And I'll be giving, yeah, an oral, oral presentation there on the longitudinal results since they'll be wrapped up by then. So I'll be able to tell you more about <laughs> how time has influenced um, the effect of cholinergic degeneration and um, MY beta on the brain in my mics. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited. It's going to be a good new year <laughs> for science. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you for being yeah, there. Yeah, it was so nice to join the interview. Yeah. <laughs> this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of a Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Claire Bottini, and my co-host was Elizabeth Mohor. I've been speaking with Kate Onushka, and the episode was produced by Hara Nadim. If you would like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. 
You can also find all our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca, on our podcast app like Podbeam, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded on YouTube at Gradcast for you. Thank you for listening and have a great night. Bye.